Section 45 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katerina. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 11, Part 3. What is happening there? The execution party is drawn out. Has a spy been caught? One? Seventeen, this time. There they come, in four ranks, each one of four men surrounded by a square of soldiers. The condemned men step out with their heads down. Behind comes a cart with a corpse in it, and bound to the corpse the dead man's son, a boy of twelve, also condemned. I could not look on at the execution and withdrew, but I heard the firing. A cloud of smoke rose from behind the walls. All were dead, the boy included. At last, a comfortable night's lodging in a little town. The poor little nest. Provisions which were to have served the people for months we have taken on requisition. Requisition. Well, it is one good thing to have a pretty recognized name for a thing. However, I was at least glad to have got a good night's lodging and a good night's food. And let me tell you a story. I was just going to lie down in bed when my orderly announced that a man of my regiment was there and earnestly begged for admission as he had something for me. Well, let him come in. And the man entered. And before he went out, I had rewarded him handsomely, shaken him by both hands and promised to look after his wife and children. For what he brought me, the fine fellow, had given me the greatest pleasure and had freed me from a pain under which I had been suffering for the last thirty-six hours. It was my Puxel, injured, it is true, honorably wounded, but still alive, and so happy to be with his master, by whose behavior he must certainly have seen that he had been wrong in charging him with want of fondness for him. Ah, that was indeed a scene of reunion. First of all, a drink of water. How good it was! He interrupted his greedy drinking ten times to bark out his joy to me. Then I bound up the stump of his leg for him, set before him a tasty supper of meat and cheese, and put him to sleep on my bed. We both slept well. In the morning when I woke, he licked my hand again and again in token of thanks. Then he stretched out his poor little leg, breathed deep, and was no more. Poor Puxel, it is better so. What is all I have seen today? If I shut my eyes, what has passed before them comes with terrible distinctness in my memory. Nothing but pain and pictures of horror, you will say. Why, then, do other men bring such fresh, such joyful images away with them from war? Ah, yes, these others close their eyes to the pain and the horror. They say nothing about them. If they write, or if they narrate, they give themselves no trouble to paint their experiences after nature, but they occupy themselves in imitating descriptions which they have read, and which they take as models, and in bringing out those impressions which are considered heroic. If they occasionally tell also of scenes of destruction, which contain in themselves the bitterest pain and the bitterest terror, nothing of either is to be discovered in their tone. On the contrary, the more terrible, the more indifferent are they, the more horrible, the more easy. Disapprobation, anger, excitement? Nothing of all this. Well, perhaps of this a slight breath of sentimental pity, a few sighs of compassion. But their heads are soon in the air again. 
the heart to God and the hand against the foe. Hua, tra-ra-ra. Now look at two of the pictures which impressed themselves on me. Steep, rocky heights, jägers nimble as cats climbing up them. The object was to take the heights from the top of which the enemy was firing. What I see are the forms of the assailants who are climbing up and some of them who are hit by the enemy's shot suddenly stretch both arms out, let their muskets fall, and with their heads falling backwards drop off the height, step by step, from one rocky point to another, smashing their limbs into pieces. I see a horseman at some distance obliquely behind me, at whose side a shell burst. His horse swerved aside and came against the tail of mine, then shot past me. The man sat still in the saddle, but a fragment of the shell had ripped his belly open and torn all the intestines out. The upper part of his body was held onto the lower only by the spine. From the ribs to the thighs nothing but one great bleeding cavity. A short distance further he fell to the ground, with one foot still clinging in the stirrup and the galloping horse dragging him on over the stony soil. An artillery division is sticking fast in a part of the road which is steep and soaked with rain. The guns are sinking deeper than their wheels in the morass. It is only with the most extreme exertion dripping with sweat and animated by the most unmerciful flogging that the horses can get forward. One, however, dead beat before, now can do no more. Thumping him does no good. He is quite willing, but he cannot. He literally can not. Cannot that man see this, whose blows are raining down on the poor beast's head? If the cruel brute had been the driver of a wagon in the service of some builder, any peace officer, even I myself, would have had him arrested. But this gunner, who has to get his death-laden carriage forward anyhow, is only doing his duty. The horse, however, cannot know this. The tortured, well-meaning, noble creature, who has exerted himself to the utmost limit of his vital power, what must he think in his inmost heart of such hard-heartedness and such want of sense? Think, as animals do think, not in words and conceptions, but in feelings, and feelings which are all the more lively for wanting expression. There is but one expression for it, the shriek of pain. And he did shriek, that poor horse, till at last he sank down, a shriek so long-drawn and so resounding that it still rings in my ear, that it haunted me in my dream the next night. A horrible dream in other respects. I thought that I was... How can I ever tell you the story... Dreams are so senseless that language conformable to sense is hardly adapted to their reproduction. That I was the sense of pain in such an artillery horse. No, not one, but in a one hundred thousand, for in my dream I had quickly summed up the number of horses slaughtered in one campaign, and thus this pain multiplied its effect at once a hundred thousandfold. The men know at least by their lives I exposed to danger. They know whither they are going, and what for. But we poor unfortunates knew nothing. All around us is night and horror. The men seem to go with pleasure to meet their foes, but we are surrounded by foes, our own masters, whom we would love so truly, to serve whom we spend our last energies. They rain blows on us, they leave us lying helpless, and all that we have to suffer besides, the fear that makes the sweat of agony run from our whole body, the thirst, for we too suffer from fever." Oh, that thirst, the thirst of us poor, bleeding, maltreated one hundred thousand horses. 
Here I woke and clutched the water bottle. I was myself suffering from burning, feverish thirst. Another street fight in the little town of Saar. To the noise of the battle cries and the shots is joined the crashing of timber and the falling of walls. A shell burst in one of the houses, and the pressure of the air, caused by its explosion, was so powerful that several soldiers were wounded by the ruins of the house, which were borne along by the air. A window flew over my head, with the window sash still in it. The chimney stack stumbled down, the plaster crumbled into dust and filled the air with a stifling cloud that stung one's eyes. From one lane to another, how the hoofs rang on the jagged pavements, the fight moved on and reached the marketplace. In the middle of the square stands a high pillar of the Virgin. The Mother of God holds her child in one arm and stretches the other out in blessing. Here the fight was prolonged, man to man. They were hacking at me. I was laying about me on all sides. Whether I hit one or more of them I know not. In such moments one does not retain much perception. Still two cases are photographed on my soul, and I fear that the marketplace at Tsar will always remain burnt into my memory. A Prussian dragoon, strong as Goliath, tore one of our officers, a pretty dandified lieutenant, how many girls are perhaps mad after him, out of his saddle and split his skull at the feet of the virgin's pillar. The gentle saint looked on unmoved. Another of the enemy's dragoons, a Goliath too, seized just before me almost, my right-hand man, and bent him backwards in his saddle so powerfully that he broke his back. I myself heard it crack. To this also the Madonna gave her stony blessing. From a height today, the field glass of the staff officer commanded once more a scene rich in changes. There was, for instance, the collapse of a bridge as a train of wagons was moving across it. Did the latter contain wounded? I do not know. I could not ascertain. I only saw that the whole train, wagons, horses, and men, sank into the deep and rushing stream and there disappeared. The event was a fortunate one, since the train of wagons belonged to the blacks. In the game now being played, I designate us as the white side. The bridge did not collapse by accident. The whites, knowing that their adversaries had to cross it, had sawn through the pillars. A dexterous stroke, that. A second prospect, on the other hand, which one might view from the same height, represented one of the follies of the whites. Our Kevenhuller regiment was directed into a morass, from which it could not extricate itself, and they were all, except a few, shot down. The wounded fell into the morass, and there had to sink and be smothered, their mouths, nose, and eyes filled with mud, so that they could not even utter a cry. Oh, yes! It must be admitted to have been an error of the man who commanded the troops to go there, but to err is human, and the loss is not a great one. Might represent a pawn taken, a speedy, lucky move of castle or queen, and all is right again. The mud, it is true, remains in the mouth and eyes of the fallen, but that is a very secondary consideration. What is reprehensible is the tactical error, that has to be wiped out by some later fortunate combination, and then the leader implicated in it may still be decorated with grand orders and promotions. That lately our 18th Battalion of Jaegers in a night battle was firing for several hours on our King of Prussia regiment, and the error was not found out until break of day that a part of the Guali regiment was let into a pond. These are little oversights, 
such as may happen even to the best of players in the heat of a game. It is decided. If I come back from this campaign, I quit the service. Setting everything else aside, if one has learned to regard anything with such horrors as war produces in me, it would be a continual lie to keep in the service of that thing. Even before this I went, as you know, to battle unwillingly and with a judgment condemnatory of it, but now this unwillingness has so increased, this condemnation has become so strengthened that all the reasons which before determined me to persevere with my profession have ceased to operate. The sentiments derived from my youthful training, and perhaps also to some extent inherited, which still pleaded with me in favor of the military life, have now quite departed from me in the course of the horrors I have just experienced. I do not know whether it is the studies which I undertook in common with you, and from which I discovered that my contempt for war is not an isolated feeling, but is shared by the best spirits of the age, or whether it is the conversations I have had with you, in which I have strengthened myself in my views by their free expression and your concurrence in them. In one word, my former vague, half-smothered feeling has changed into a clear conviction, in conviction which makes it from this time impossible to do service to the war god. It is the same kind of change as comes to many people in matters of belief. First, they are somewhat skeptical and indifferent. Still, they can assist at the business of the temple with a certain sense of reverence. But when once all mysticism is put aside, when they rise to the perception that the ceremony which they are attending rests on folly, and sometimes on cruel folly, as in the case of the religious death sacrifices, then they will no longer kneel beside the other befooled folks, no longer deceive themselves and the world by entering the now desecrated temple. This is the process which has gone on with me in relation to the cruel worship of Mars, the mysterious, supernatural, awe-inspiring feeling which the appearance of this deity generally awakens in man, and which in former times obscured my senses also, has now entirely passed away for me. The liturgy of the bulletins and the ritual of heroic phraseology no longer appear to me as divine revelation. The mighty organ voice of the canon, the incense smoke of the powder, have no charm more for me. I assist at the terrible worship perfectly devoid of belief or reverence, and can now see nothing in it except the tortures of the victims, hear nothing but their wailing death cries. And thence comes it that these pages, which I am filling with my impressions of war, contain nothing except pain seen with pain. End of section 45